everybody. Welcome to today's episode of The Law of Self-Defense. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Come on in. Make yourselves comfortable. We uh, we have a two-part show today. I uh, had planned to cover the news story of a, a police officer who shot at an aggressive dog, uh, but managed to instead uh, strike and kill the dog's owner unintentionally. Uh, we'll cover that second today. Uh, first, we'll cover some more of the Ohio dad who shot his daughter's ex-boyfriend through the door of his home uh, because we have some new information that came out about that that I thought worth covering in some more detail, uh, particularly uh, some more details on which of the three rounds fired killed the ex-boyfriend um, and also uh, the interview of the father by police in the aftermath of the shooting. So come on in, folks. Come on in. Uh, there was also an interview of the daughter. Uh, I'm not going to do that one because it's just it's, it's somewhat trite and boring, and, and the daughter wouldn't be subject to uh, any criminal charges here regardless. So it doesn't seem worth covering. If you're following this as a Law of Self-Defense member, I encourage you to do that on the uh, Law of Self-Defense member dashboard. You put your questions and comments there. They'll get prioritized Um Attention, if you're watching this on YouTube, welcome, welcome, welcome. Of course, we always appreciate all of you as well. And I'm happy to answer your questions as well, but they do need to be in the form of a super chat. Uh, at least five bucks, folks, for a YouTube super chat. Uh, also, if you're watching on YouTube and that subscribe button is red, please smack it like you hate it uh, until it turns gray. Hit that bell, subscribe button. That's the single biggest thing you can do for us is uh, get to our subscribes. Um, and uh, I don't know, Shane. Shane says he sees no Super Chats again. I'm not sure what that means. Does that mean Super Chats are not possible? Uh, let me see. Oh, you know what? I wonder if YouTube's already demonetized this. I wonder if that would have that effect. Let me see. Yeah, they already demonetized it. So no super chats, folks. I'll do the best I can if I see um, <laughs> questions in the uh, in the comments. Sorry, folks. I don't run YouTube. This is what they like to do. Uh, if you could leave a, a a comment of any kind with a city and state, that would be great. Always appreciated. Helps, uh, I guess, in theory, fool the YouTube algorithm. Obviously, I am not YouTube's favorite person. Uh, if you'd like to get the unadulterated version of all this content, by the way, folks, you might consider becoming a Law Self-Defense member. I can put whatever videos I want on our members' uh, blog for member access. So, yeah, they may not have liked the title. I have the word kill in the title. That might lead to automatic uh, demonetization. I'm not savvy about these things. YouTube doesn't tell you these things explicitly. You have to kind of figure it out from experience. And frankly, I don't care enough to generate the experience. So there we go. Uh, I do want to mention the uh, one way you can support us, even if it's not through YouTube Super Chats, is by taking advantage of our products and services. And one of those is our just launched American Law courses. These are Law school level courses taught in plain English by legal experts in the field of each of the courses. They're taught at a fraction of the cost and the time of actual law school and without the leftist, crazy, lunatic uh, 
<clears throat> Biden level anti-American that plagues law schools today. We simply teach traditional American law in the traditional American way. The first course at the American Law Courses is criminal law being taught by attorney Steve Gosney. You've seen him here many times as a guest on this channel, on our shows. Uh, Stephen is a remarkably experienced uh, defense attorney, criminal defense attorney and prosecutor. He's been on both sides of that fence and a very well-respected author of legal academic papers as well. He's among the top 10% most cited papers or Steve Gosney papers in the legal profession, even though he's never been an, uh, an academic. He's never been a law school professor, for example, although he is a professor at American Law Courses. So Steve starts teaching his criminal law course next week, next Wednesday, September 7th. Uh, up till that date, if you sign up for the course, you get 50% off the tuition, which again, in any case, is a fraction of what a law school would charge for a similar law school level course in criminal law. We also have bundles of courses you can sign up for that would save you even more. So if that's at all of interest, and I suggest it should be, folks. I mean, after all, you, you can't win the game if you don't know the rules. And the game, for serious social purposes, um, the rules are the law. So if you don't understand the law, the law that constrains and controls and governs uh, our society, ourselves, um, can you really say you're in the game if you don't know the rules? So we're offering to teach you the rules at a law school level at a fraction of the time and the cost and without the leftist political ideology of law school. You can learn more about all of that at lawofselfdefense.com slash law courses. Uh, by the way, after Steve's criminal law course, we will have courses on constitutional law with the Second Amendment focus, uh, courses on evidence, courses on criminal procedure, and other subjects as well. Again, you can learn more about all of that at lawofselfdefense.com slash law courses. All right, so let's continue with our already demonetized YouTube show. And take a look at what we have. So first, I wanted to share with all of you some more uh, information, detail that's come out about this Ohio shooting. This is the case where the Ohio father uh, shot through the front door of his home into uh, the person of his daughter's ex-boyfriend. The father, his wife, and the daughter were all inside the home. The home was being violently breached. The door was being smashed in by the ex-boyfriend. Uh, and uh, as the door was finally being breached, the boyfriend was in the process of entering the home. The father fired three shots. I didn't prepare the video of all that again here today. I guess I may as well pull it up since I'm already demonetized, right? Let me see if I can find that quickly. I wasn't going to play it because I had some slim hope that this uh, today's show would not be demonetized by YouTube. But since they've already gone ahead and done that, I may as well pull it up. Let's see if I can find it quickly. All right, I can. So it's only about a minute long. What we'll see is the boyfriend standing outside the front door of the dad's house. Um, Again, the dad, his wife, and the daughter, the adult daughter, are all inside. The daughter broke up with this guy like a year and a half ago. Uh, apparently, he was uh, weird, insulting, offensive to her personally. I mean, not anyone you'd want to date. Uh, a drug user. Um, just a, a really unpleasant person. Uh, I don't have the recording of the 911 call. 
Uh, but it's I've read in media reports that uh, the 911 recording captures the daughter wondering aloud to her father if this creepy guy has come there to kill her. So she had a concern for her safety even before the door begins to be breached. We'll see the ex-boyfriend standing on the front porch uh, looking at the ring camera. Actually, the first couple of seconds, he rings the doorbell. Then he'll open up the storm door. He'll try the doorknob on the front door. The front door is locked with a deadbolt. Uh, and he'll begin to force the front door. We'll hear the front door breaking in, and then we'll hear the three shots fired at roughly one-second intervals. Uh, the first shot, the boyfriend's entering the home, basically. The second shot, he's turned about 90 degrees away from the door, still on the porch. Uh, the third shot, he's uh, facing away from the doorway, on his way to exiting the patio, um, and he catches that third round in the back. It would turn out, according to the medical examiner's report, that it was the third round that caused the fatal injury. Um, the first two rounds, apparently, each, one round each struck him in each shoulder. Would not have been a fatal injury if uh, promptly treated, but the shot to the back is what ultimately killed him. He'll stagger around the corner to the garage uh, area and uh, lay down on the ground, and that'll be the end of that. So uh, let me go ahead and pull this video up, and uh, it's about a minute and a quarter long. It's not too long, and we can... Enjoy together, may as well, right? Since we're already demonetized. Okay, so here we go. Whoops, that's not what I wanted. Dog barking inside. The family's on 911 pretty quick. They start giving this guy orders. Get off the porch. I've got a gun. They even have a ring doorbell sticker on their window there. But he, he knows the doorbell is there. He looked right at it. So he knows he's on camera. Now he tries the door. Door's locked. And he'll begin trying to force the door with success, by the way. It's not that hard to get through a front door if you want to. This is not a huge guy. Shoulder to the door. Bam. Bam. Starts breaking the door in. Metal door would be nice here. First shot. Second shot. Third shot. In the back. As he's getting away. Now, when I talked about this uh, a couple of days ago, we did a show just on this video. Uh, the kind of theme of that show was, was that third shot one too many? By that point, should the father have known that uh, this guy was no longer attempting to breach the home, uh, that he was no longer at, in the absence of any weapon at hand by the ex-boyfriend, uh, that he was no longer an imminent deadly force threat? Or was this three shots over a two-second period, that one-second pacing was that all within a, a decision window where a reasonable person would have believed that third shot was uh, appropriate, that there was still a threat to be defended against? And I wasn't trying to make a judgment call there. I was only making the point that when you have these delays, it's kind of a slow-paced event. And you know, when, when you can fire three shots in half a second, three shots over a two-second period, 
is relatively slow paced. The last shot does hit the ex-boyfriend in the back as he's walking away. He is no longer trying to get into the home. That is the fatal shot. Uh, The question is, was that third shot one too many? Now, what matters, of course, for legal purposes is not whether it was actually one too many, but whether or not from the father's perspective, the defender firing the shots, would he have had a reasonable perception that there were still an imminent deadly force threat? And it does appear the shots were fired through the front door, meaning through the glass. There was apparently a, a big oval piece of glass in the front door. Glass shards were embedded in the back of um, in the person of the ex-boyfriend. So he was still proximate to the door, uh, sufficiently proximate for glass shards to strike him when the bullet fired, went through the glass of the door. And uh, so the ability of the father to precisely view the threat may have been clouded right if the if he's looking at the ex-boyfriend through this glass in his front door and the glass is shattered fogged there's debris uh, it becomes more difficult to accurately assess a threat clearly there was a threat the boyfriend was breaching the home he broke the door coming in um and I think it would be reasonable to presume there's still likely to be a threat until you see clear evidence to the contrary. And it may not have been possible to see clear evidence, depending on what the father was able to see through there. Could he have just, did he just see a figure outside the door? Um, Couldn't really tell if it was facing him or facing away or proximate or not that proximate. You know, it's reasonable to infer that the the past threat is still ongoing unless you have good reason to believe it's not. And it's not clear the father would have had good reason. here. But in any case, that's the shooting. Certainly one person on the grand jury thought there was reason voted to go to trial. Only one out of, I believe it was 14 or 15 members of the grand jury. Only one of them voted for this to go to trial. The others all returned a a no true bill, declined to return an indictment. But, you know, these are all judgment calls being made by human beings. And one human being on that grand jury thought this ought to go to trial. If you went to trial, uh, would the prosecutor then be able to argue, convince uh, a jury that that third shot, the killing shot, was not in fact or by reasonable perception still necessary? Maybe. I mean, we'll we'll never know. We don't know. Uh, All of you in the comments, of course, may have your own opinions about whether or not it was justified, but you would understand that your opinion itself does not control the opinions of prospective jurors. So that is that video. And it went before the grand jury. Essentially, the grand jury declined to indict. And now we have a a statement because this this video was released. We have a statement from the, um, the... County prosecutor, this was in Shelby County, Ohio, from the county prosecutor and from the local sheriff, Shelby County Sheriff. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's kind of a lengthy. uh, It's a lengthy press release, basically. Uh, I guess they wanted to get their view of the story out. There is a certain degree of outrage in the community, by the way, at least by the ex-boyfriend's family members whose view is as you might expect, uh, their view is that third shot wasn't necessary, that the ex-boyfriend had already been persuaded to depart, to stop trying to get into the home, and that third shot in the back was simply murder. It's not an unreasonable view of the evidence. It doesn't have to be the answer here, right? The answer is subject to judgment. Uh, But certainly in the family's judgment, the family of the ex-boyfriend, 
That's their view. And they're holding many protests. And there may well, I mean, there was one neighbor interviewed as a witness who overheard or saw some of these events. Uh, and one neighbor said he doesn't understand why this person had to be shot dead. He was already walking away. So not necessarily an unreasonable view of the evidence. Uh, other neighbors said, uh, nope, this, uh, in their view, this was a good shoot. Of course, whether any of these people know what's required for a good shoot or not is a separate question. Uh, but let me open up this press statement here. If I can find it, let's see. Here we go. Uh, so Fry and Sell. Fry is the local sheriff. Sell is the local prosecutor. And they released this press statement. Let me zoom this in a little bit, see if it, it ends up being uh, bigger. Well, not much bigger, huh? Let me try this. That's a little better. So most of this is uh, undisputed facts. It's not really important to call. A 911 call was placed while Rail, James Rail, was the uh, ex-boyfriend who was shot and killed here, was at the door. It's The 911 call is consistent with what the Ring video showed. Uh, detectives attended the autopsy of James Rail, and uh, they were informed that Rail was shot three times, once in the left shoulder, once in the right shoulder, and in the back. Detectives were informed that glass shards were found in the back wound. So even when his back was to the front door, and remember, these ring cameras, they don't give you a, the same view as an eye, eyeball, right? They're kind of um, wide-angle cameras. So things, you know, like they have on the, 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 um, the side view mirrors on cars, the objects are closer than they may appear, right? So he may be closer to the door than the ring camera video footage would suggest. Certainly he was close enough that there were glass shards found in the back wound. Uh, so even when his back was turned to the door, he was still close enough for that to happen. Uh, and that third round to the back was the shot that caused death. Uh, the decision was made even then, right after the event, that this would be presented to the grand jury. Uh, the family of the uh, boyfriend, the ex-boyfriend, provided their own information to the sheriff's office who investigated, found that information not to be helpful in the investigation here. Uh, all the evidence was uh, reviewed and presented to the grand jury and the grand jury by an eight to one vote uh, declined not to return in indictment. Um, now, of course, the, the prosecutor here did something they don't absolutely have to do. And that is they did advise the grand jury of the, law favorable to the defense as well as the law favorable to the state and and generally the, the the prosecutor doesn't have to do that in front of a grand jury they only have to tell their side of the story by telling both sides of the story here hey here's the narrative of guilt here's the narrative of innocence for the father um, the prosecutor's pretty much sending a signal that he doesn't really want an indictment here if he wanted an indictment he wouldn't tell the defense narrative to the grand jury He'd wait for the defense narrative to be told by the defense to the trial jury. But in any case, the, uh, the grand jury, having seen all the evidence and heard both sides of the argument, the side favorable to the state and favorable to the defense, declined to return an indictment on the father. They are, of course, sympathetic with the, uh, the family of James Rail. Everybody, I'm sure the father, too, believe, uh, would wish that this did not have to happen. Um, but nevertheless, of course, it did happen. 
Uh, there's a news report here from the Daily Mail. Sometimes we get the best reporting from the UK press folks about these events as opposed to the very politically uh, biased American press. But most of it goes into her dating relationship with the boyfriend. They've been broken up about a week and a half earlier. They have some video of the, um, the daughter being interviewed by the police. Uh, one thing I should point out here, though, is they, they like to point out, the media in general likes to point out, anytime um, the survivors of this event, especially if they're associated with the defender, either the defender themselves or people associated with the defender, when they're being questioned by police, if there's any instant in time where that person being interviewed by the police or being processed. Maybe they've been arrested. Maybe there are mugshots being taken. If there's any instant in that interaction where they smile or chuckle or laugh, it's presented by the media as if they're smiling, chuckling, or laughing over the fact that they just had to shoot and kill somebody. Invariably, folks, that's not why they're smiling, chuckling, or laughing. They've just been through the most horrible experience of their life. They've just had to kill another human being. They're going through this hours-long, drawn-out process of dealing with law enforcement. Hours and hours and hours, often in the middle of the night. And somebody, to relieve the tension in the room, says something kind of funny. And if you're ever in a stressful situation like that, and someone says something intended to be funny... You might smile or chuckle even if you don't think it's funny or appropriate just because the social indicators are to do that. The polite thing is, uh, well, that joke was stupid, but uh, okay, ha, ha, ha. It doesn't mean they're happy about the killing, folks, but that's how the media presents it here. Uh, so like one of the headlines, for example, <clears throat> I think it's here in the story about the... Uh, about the daughter let me take a look and see if I can find it yes here's one it's a it's a screen capture here I'll share the image I will share the image. Here we go. And the little caption at the bottom here says, Allison, this is the daughter who dated the ex-boyfriend who was shot and killed. Uh, Allison appears to be smiling in an interview with officers. Now, she does appear to be smiling. You think she's smiling because her dad had to shoot and kill her ex-boyfriend? I doubt it. But that's the implication we're supposed to draw here, right? It's uh, it's really contemptible. This, we had the same thing happen with Kim Potter, by the way, in the, the taser, taser, taser case where Dante Wright was killed. Kim Potter was the police officer who believed she was pointing a taser at Dante Wright. In fact, she had her service pistol in her hand and she fired what she thought was a taser into his side. In fact, shot him with a nine millimeter round and killed him. And then in her booking photos, uh, in her mugshots, uh, some of them, she has a smile on her face. You think she's smiling because she just killed somebody unnecessarily and ruined her own life? Is 
likely to be prosecuted and go off to prison, which is in fact what happened. You think she's smiling about that? No, she's smiling because somebody in the room said something to evoke a smile from her. Um, but that's they're not smiling over the act itself. It's, it's contemptible, really, to even suggest it. And then we have this new story, again, from the Daily Mail. This one is about the dad. So let me open up this. We'll spend a little more time on this one. Ohio father. I shot through the door because he was coming in. Well, as we talked about in the last video a couple days ago about this, uh, if you're forcibly and unlawfully entering someone's home, you're breaking stuff to get in, there's a legal presumption that you're there to inflict. Well, there's a legal presumption that the homeowner, the defender, has a reasonable perception of an imminent deadly force threat that would justify the use of deadly defensive force. And there's often a parallel legal presumption that your intent, not just their perception of what you're doing, but there's a presumption that your intent is to inflict deadly force harm on the occupants of that home. So once someone's forcibly and unlawfully breaking into your home, they're basically giving you everything you need to justify your use of deadly defensive force, unless you screw it up, like do something stupid, like chase him down the street uh, and shoot him. Or one might argue the family of the ex-boyfriend here is arguing unless you shoot him in the back after they're no longer trying to get in. Uh, but certainly once uh, James Rail was forcibly and unlawfully entering the home, the Ohio father inside the home, not just himself defending, but of course his wife and his daughter inside the home as well, had certainly had every justification he needed to fire that first shot. Uh, and the grand jury believed the second and third shot as well. Uh, James Rail, the ex-boyfriend, struck in the left shoulder, right shoulder and back, staggered away from the shooting, fell over and died. Uh, the father says he shot through the door because he was nervous about Rail's behavior. Well, that's not true. That's not why he shot. Certainly he was nervous. Certainly he was frightened. Certainly he was feeling lots of emotions and had lots of perceptions. That's not the reason he pressed the trigger. The reason he pressed the trigger was because this lunatic was breaking down his front door to get into the house. Even knowing, by the way, having been informed by the occupants of the home that they were armed with guns. Uh, the father also admitted that the nine millimeter firearm used in the killing was registered to his father-in-law. I mean, that doesn't matter at all. Assuming, of course, the father's in otherwise in lawful possession of the gun. Nobody cares who the gun's registered to in America. Um, the daughter, uh, 22, had broken up with the boyfriend a year and a half earlier. Um, and the grand jury voted eight to one not to indict the father based on Ohio stand your ground law. They didn't do that based on Ohio stand your ground law. Stand your ground has nothing to do with this. Uh, Ohio only recently became a stand your ground state, meaning uh, even outside your home, if you're acting in otherwise lawful self-defense, you don't have a legal obligation to attempt to retreat before you can defend yourself against a deadly force attack. That's what stand your ground means. Uh, Ohio only became a stand your ground state within the last couple of years. Before that, you did have a legal duty to retreat, if safely possible, before you could use deadly force and self-defense in Ohio if you were defending yourself out in public. But even before Ohio became stand your ground, it already had a castle doctrine, which basically does the same thing if you're defending yourself in your home. And of course, here the father's defending himself in his home. So he would have had no legal duty to retreat under the Castle Doctrine even before Ohio became a stand-your-ground state. So stand-your-ground is completely irrelevant to this case. 
But of course, the media has to throw the phrase stand your ground in there. I don't know if it, they think it triggers an algorithm. Maybe they're right about that. A fav favorable algorithm to get more readers or more clicks. But Ohio's stand your ground law has absolutely nothing to do with this case. The father doesn't need stand your ground to relieve him of a legal duty to retreat that doesn't exist anyway because he doesn't have that legal duty when he's defending himself in his home. Uh, let's see, a father who shot dead his daughter's ex-boyfriend as he tried to break into the home can be seen laughing with officers during his interview after the killing. Again, this is what the media does. They're trying to create the impression that the father's laughing about having killed someone. You believe that's the case? Or you believe that someone in the room said something to create some levity, to release some pressure, some tension, to relax the person? They're just about to... Um, interrogate. I mean, they may do it politely, but it's still an interrogation. Uh, and the father laughed in response. He may not even have thought the remark was genuinely funny, but that's what social cues tell us to do when someone attempts to say something humorous. Uh, Mitchell Duckrow, that's the father, shot his daughter Allison's former boyfriend, James Rail, three times after he showed up unannounced to their home. You know, it's so funny how they phrase this. Well, it makes it sound like the father shot James Rail because James Rail shot, showed up unannounced. So uh, I guess in the eyes of this UK newspaper, in America, if you show up unannounced at someone's home, they can just shoot you. Is that why the father shot James Rail? Because he showed up unannounced at his home? Or was it because James Rail was smashing down the front door of the father's house? Uh, new footage obtained by the Daily Mail, that's this UK press organization, shows uh, the father recalling the moments leading up to the shooting, telling officers at the Shelby County Sheriff's Office that he was nervous. Well, of course he was nervous. That's not the reason he shot. Uh, let's see. So a lot of this is quotes from the video of this interview. So I'm going to skip the news report and just go right to the video, which I have prepared. For everybody hopefully we'll be able to hear it okay let me see let me open this up uh, that's the shooting that's the interview here we go all right so let's see if i can make this a little bigger yeah there we go well i guess that's a little better it's not great uh the first thing and really the most important thing I want to point out with this video, and we'll, we'll play it. It's, it's uh, about six minutes long, and I, I'll have additional things to say as we go through it. But the overarching statement here is on the left, you see the father who shot James Rail in defense of his home, his wife, and his daughter. On the right, you have the police investigator, very informally dressed, but he's the detective, in essence, whatever his title may be, conducting this interrogation of the suspect who is the father and what you don't see in that empty seat next to the father is what his legal counsel his lawyer the father's engaging subjecting himself to interrogation by a professionally trained interrogator and that's not a knock on the cop that's his job that's what we pay him to do but the father with no we can presume no training in interrogation te techniques is subjecting himself to a professional interrogation at the hands of this detective with no legal counsel present. 
Folks, that is absolutely insane. That is insane. Now, in our our full-day law self-defense advanced course, uh, we talk for almost an hour about interacting with the police in the aftermath of a use-of-force event um, because there's a lot to cover. It's complicated. Um, I mean, for example, you don't just have one police interaction. You have at least three different police interactions in the aftermath of a use-of-force event. Uh, presuming you call 911, you have the 911 call. And yes, I know that may be a dispatcher. They're not technically a sworn officer. They're not post-certified. But you're talking to the police. Make no mistake about it. And it's being recorded, of course. By the way, it's being recorded before they answer. So make sure you're aware of that. So you have the 911 call. Then you have the interaction with the responding officers who arrive on the scene in response to the 911 call. And then you have a third level interaction, which is with the detectives who conduct the interrogation afterwards, what we're seeing here in this room. And I would suggest that each of those different interactions requires a different strategy, unless you're simply going to say nothing to anybody. If you're literally going to say nothing except assert your rights, and if you are going to assert your rights, folks, you need to assert them unambiguously and know what rights to assert. So the rights to assert are your right to silence and your right to counsel, and you need to assert them unambiguously. I am asserting my right to counsel. I am asserting my right to silence, period. Not, I don't know if I should say anything, or not, do you think I need a lawyer? Neither of those is an effective assertion of your rights, folks. Uh, so you need to assert those rights unambiguously and then shut up, shut up and stay shut up until you get your lawyer. And that could take a long time. That's one way to go. Say nothing except assertion of your rights. For most people, that's probably the smart way to go. 99.9% .9 of criminal defense attorneys wish that their clients had taken that approach. There are more advanced options for people who are, I would call them professionally trained in self-defense law and who have the type of temperament where they can reliably execute a more advanced approach to interacting with the police. But that's something we, we spend an hour on in our law self-defense advanced course. Uh, the next one of which is, by the way, October 1st of this year. So less than a month away now. Um, just go to lawselfdefense.com. You can learn more about that. <clears throat> but what you don't do, what you never do, even if you're going to take that more advanced approach, that more sophisticated approach, because you've been trained and you believe you have the temperament to pull it off without simply blathering away, the one person you never talk to substantively at all without a lawyer present is this guy on the right is the detective, is the interrogator. Once you're, once you're in this room being questioned, you don't say a damn thing except asserting your right to silence, asserting your right to counsel, period. No matter what you might have thought was appropriate to say earlier, you're not saying a damn thing here without your legal counsel present. And maybe not then, but definitely not without them present. And one of the reasons for that, by the way, is anything the father says here, and by the way, he would have waived his Miranda rights already because the, the one definite trigger 
for reading of Miranda rights, for being Mirandized, is they want to question you as a suspect, which is what's happening during this interrogation. So they would have Mirandized him. He would have waived his rights. Now, can you reassert your rights after you waive them? Yes, you can. But meanwhile, anything you've said can and may be used against you in a court of law. So the father here has waived his Miranda rights. He has no legal counsel present. Anything he says during this interrogation that's favorable to him, not admissible as evidence in court. The jury will never see it. Anything he says in this interrogation that could be used to imply guilt can be used against him in court. There's only downside here. There cannot be upside. You can only hurt yourself here. And that interrogator, professionally trained, and again, we don't have time in this show to go through interrogation techniques, but you can Google it. These things work. That's why police are trained to use them. They're not asking questions at random, folks. It's not a, a, a social conversation. It's an interrogation. They're using specific questioning techniques, and they know the words that need to come out of your mouth that would suggest guilt, that would su suggest a prosecution is in order. Charges are in order. You have no idea what you could say that would implicate you as being guilty of having committed crimes. You don't know. They do know, and they're fishing for those words. In fact, as we play this video, when we get to the end, you'll, you'll see the investigator begin to fish for statements from the father that might be used against the father here. Um, and again, this is not to be critical of this officer. This is what we pay detectives to do. This is his job. He's doing his job. We pay as taxpayers for his training to do this job. This is why we hire him. This officer is not doing anything wrong but understand his job. It's to be an interrogator. It's not to be this dad's friend, right? So, but might he present himself in an affable, friendly manner? He's not pulling out heat lamps and rubber hoses, right? He's not shouting down the father. He's having just a nice, pleasant conversation with the father. That's part of the interrogation process, folks. So the father feels comfortable, feels like, oh, I can talk to this guy. This guy's reasonable. I mean, surely when I explain to him what happened, he'll understand I had no choice. That's what they want you to think, folks. They need you to talk. If you're not talking, there is no interrogation, right? It's like if you're a car buyer, you walk into the dealership. What's your, we all hate that, right? We all hate having to deal with dealerships, having to buy a car. We hate it. But what's your ultimate power there? The ultimate power is in your hands. You can walk out of that dealership anytime you want. And if you walk out, there is no sale. There is no commission. You control that. In this interrogation, you control whether or not there is an interrogation. You cannot be forcibly subject to interrogation in America. And you definitely do not want to subject yourself to interrogation at the hands of a professional without your legal counsel present. So this, this should simply not happen, ever, ever. All right. I'm sure I have another hours of rant uh, about that. But um, let me go ahead and, and play this, and uh, we'll see what I can comment on as it goes along. Here we go. After you um, grabbed your gun from your bedside table, uh, I went back out, and they were still trying to get him to leave, and he wouldn't leave. 
All right. So the father was not armed on his person. He had a gun reasonably accessible, I guess, on his bedside table. But if the boyfriend had started with kicking the door in, would the father have been able to get to his gun? Maybe not. Maybe not fast enough. So, you know, I know many of us, many people have concealed carry permits and carry their gun occasionally when they go out. I mean, it's your choice. I don't tell people what to do. I carry my gun all the time, folks. And I normally carry my gun when I'm in the office, when I'm at home. It goes on in the morning and it comes off and goes into my little nightstand lockbox when I go to bed. Otherwise, it's on me unless, of course, I'm in some secured area where I'm not legally permitted to be armed like a courthouse or the secure area of an airport or something along those lines. But in the normal course of the day, including when I'm home, I'm armed because those doors kick in fast or the windows kick in fast or you have kids and they leave the doors unlocked. But in any case, the father... Uh, had was given sufficient warning by the boyfriend that he was able to get to his nightstand, get his gun. So he's armed for the, I guess the, the probably the whole term of the video here, uh, at least moments after the, uh, the doorbell rings, but good thing. The boyfriend didn't start with a boot to the door. And I was, as soon as I, I was standing there, there was debating on whether to call 911. I said, do it. Where were you guys standing at? Right there by the, all right, he's he's standing there debating whether to call 911. Folks, if you felt obliged to retrieve a gun because you're afraid action is imminent, that's a good time to call 911. You want cops there sooner rather than later. By the way, especially if you know what you're doing, especially if you've trained yourself, in self-defense law, and by the way, this is our book, folks. You can get this book for free at lawofselfdefense.com slash free book. It's a real physical book. It's not just some PDF thing. Real physical book, a couple hundred pages. Get it for free at lawofselfdefense.com slash free book. We only ask that you cover the cost of shipping the book to you. Um, if you want to pick it up in our office in Castle Rock, Colorado, I guess you can do that, and then I'll just hand you a book. Um, but we do ask that you cover the shipping and the cost of the warehouse guys to, you know, package it up and that kind of stuff. But the $25 cost of the book, which is what it goes for on Amazon, we eat that lawselfdefense.com slash free book. Uh, especially if you've trained yourself on the legal boundaries for use of force and you're doing it right. Uh, people who act in lawful self-defense and are doing it right, their cases don't tend to get into trouble because there's too much evidence in the case. They tend to get in trouble when there's too little evidence in the case. And when there's too little evidence, their claim of self-defense can begin to appear speculative or imaginative or fabricated. Generally speaking, we want more evidence. Lawful cases of self-defense. And that 911 call is going to be evidence. So I would suggest getting on 911 sooner rather than later. By the way, the fact that you're calling 911 also goes to your state of mind, right? You're not seeking to have a physical confrontation with this person. You're having, you're seeking to have 
on the contrary, you're seeking to have the police come and deal with any physical confrontation that has to happen. You're not a mutual combatant here. You're not accepting an invitation to fight. You're not looking to go hands-on. You're looking to avoid going hands-on by having the police go hands-on on your behalf, which is what law-abiding citizens do. That's why we have police. Uh, so that's good. All that talking, trying to, they wouldn't acknowledge that. I saw him starting to jiggle the, the handles and stuff, saying that it was locked. And that's when I went up to the door. You know, kind of wanted to make sure he didn't force his way in. So while he was jiggling the handle, you went up to try to open the door shut. I'm pretty sure I was telling him to stop and leave and get off the porch or something. So obviously, my folks, my, my expertise is the law. It's not defensive tactics. I'm not a defensive tactics instructor. Uh, but I would not be doing this. Uh, the father describes he's got his gun in hand. Now he's gone up to the door. He wants to put his weight on the inside of the door to try to keep the, um, the ex-boyfriend out, to try to prevent the ex-boyfriend from forcing the door open. Um, that's hard to do, folks. Um, especially if the structure of the door is being broken as happened here as, as pretty much has to happen if the door is locked as this one was. Uh, if it's me, I'm, I'm making sure my family is in a safe position. I'm behind a position of cover and uh, I'm just watching that door. That guy does not have to break into my house. That's on him if he breaks into the house. Um, but I, I'm going to be in a more defensive. What if you're on the other side of that door and that guy pulls a gun out of his waistband and starts firing his own rounds through the door? Is he likely to miss you? He can see through the glass, too. He can see you're standing right there. Is that a very good defensive position? Even if you, you thought you could hold the door closed, which you probably can't, which this father couldn't. So I, I would not be doing that. But again, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a defensive tactics instructor. But I had my nine in my hand to this hand. And, he, and then he started hitting it with the shoulder pretty hard to where... You saw what he did yeah. eventually. And once I realized he was getting in and the door was open is when I shot. Okay. Did you shoot through the door? I or shot through the window? Through the window part of the door because the door was open and he was coming in. So he was pushing his way in yeah. and I you shot. I had my socks on so I couldn't. I didn't have no grip. Was he kind of pushing you back as you were trying to yeah, hold him? he was moving me. Okay. So here the... the, the um, investigators asking, did you shoot through the door? You know, shooting through a door can be problematic if you, uh, in circumstances where you have a solid door, you can't really see where the person is on the other side. You don't know if there might be innocent people with them. Um, is it is it likely you're going to get a solid shot on them as opposed to just sending rounds through your community? Is it reckless to shoot through a closed, solid door you can't see through? Uh, so shooting through the door, a door, can be problematic. Here, that would appear not to be the case because of this large glass pane. If you can see what you're shooting at, there's nothing about self-defense law that says you can't shoot through a pane of glass in otherwise lawful self-defense. Um, also here, the father's describing he's wearing socks. He can't get a grip with his feet on the floor. He can't, in fact, hold the door closed. I, I would not want to be right on the other side. What if the door flings open and knocks you down? What if your gun goes flying? What if you lose possession of your gun? And now it's a, a wrestling match for your gun. And this father, he's not old. He's younger than me, 52, five years younger than me. Um, 
but he doesn't appear to be in the best of shape. Does he want to fight a young man twice his age who may be a little crazy? Physically, hands-on, fight him? That's when I, at first I, wouldn't, I was trying to shoot, but my clip wasn't at him. Okay. And then I freaked out, and I finally did that, did another rack, and then he was pushing hard, and that's when the gun fired, I think, three times. That's when the gun fired, I think, three times. So a couple things there. One, of course, is that <laughs> suddenly the father, it's almost like he's suddenly realizing, oh, wait a minute, there could be uh, legal implications here if I say I fired the gun. Um, the gun fired. The gun didn't fire itself, right? He fired the gun deliberately in one second intervals, three deliberate shots. So this this whole passive voice thing is is off-putting. He does refer to the magazine and the gun as a clip. You know, most people don't know anything about guns. I wouldn't, the father knew enough to try to, you know, reseat the magazine and cycle the slide. So full, full credit for that. A lot of gun owners wouldn't know how to do even that. Um, why was the magazine not fully seated? Was it that way on the nightstand where he kept it? I don't know. Uh, was it seated then, but under pressure, he hit the mag release, bumped the mag release and, you know, released the mag just enough that the uh, i guess it was a pistol apparently a pistol that uh, wouldn't fire it had a, a magazine disconnect so it wouldn't fire unless the magazine was fully seated um, but the father knew enough to seat the magazine cycle the slide and get back into the fight uh, the other thing is he says i think three times the gun fired i think three times extremely common folks for defenders to not know how many shots they fired to not be able to count to three. He didn't fire 10 times and couldn't remember if it was nine, 10 or 11. He fired three times. That's it. It's a low number. One, two, three. And he can't remember. And I totally believe him that he can't remember that he's uncertain um, because I've seen this a thousand times under much less stressful situations. I've told this anecdote before, but, um, when I was teaching 40, 45 live classes a year, I would often bring a very high-end shooting simulator, self-defense simulator system with me, a $20,000 system in a giant Pelican case. It would project a video of a potential threat on a screen, and the student holding a, a fake infrared-type pistol would have to solve the threat problem using verbal commands, using the fake pistol, whatever the case may be. And then after they solved the problem, we would have them turn their back to the screen, look at the rest of the class and explain to us what they saw, what they did and why they did it. And they couldn't do that, folks. Uh, very, very reliably, they could not remember what they saw. They didn't see obvious things. Or if I suggested things, they would suddenly remember they saw things that weren't there, things that I made up. Uh, they couldn't remember what they did. They certainly couldn't remember how many shots they fired. But we actually had one student who accidentally bumped the mag release on this infrared pistol. The, the magazine was able to drop out. It was a lot like a cert pistol for those who are familiar with those. The magazine dropped on the ground. He picked it up, shoved it back into the gun backwards so hard we needed tools to get it out afterwards and then re-engage the target. And when he had to explain to the class afterwards what he did, he didn't remember doing any of that. No recollection. Because the way our brain 
captures and stores and recalls information under life-threatening or what we perceive to be life-threatening stress is completely different than our normal experience. And you lose the ability to count the three. So this defender actually has no idea how many shots he fired. Now, what if he gives a specific number to this investigator? What if he says twice? I only shot twice. And then it turns out he shot three times and it was the third shot that killed the ex-boyfriend. Could that be characterized as a false statement, a lie by the prosecution that the prosecution wanted to bring this case to trial? Sure. Absolutely it could. Just can't remember. They can't remember. And you won't remember either, folks. Another reason, even when we talk about interacting with the police in the aftermath of a use of force event in our, our full day live course, when we suggest there may be things you do want to say to the police, we never suggest giving any kind of detailed accounting of what happened. Certainly nothing like how many shots were fired. And the reason we tell people not to even attempt to do that is because you don't know. You don't know how many shots you fired. You just don't know. Twice up here and maybe another one. Maybe another Are one. Twice sure? and maybe another one. Okay. That may be another one. That's the, that's the killing shot. That's the one that would be the basis for a murder charge, a murder conviction, and a life sentence without possibility of early release. That may be another one. Don't be having these damn conversations without your lawyer present, folks. And maybe not even then. And uh, do you recall, like, after you fired the first round through the glass, did he eventually get the door all the way swung open? Or do you think all the shots were through that glass window? I was all through the glass. All through the glass, okay. And from what I remember, your, your kind of front door glass was, is it, is it like an oval? Does the door need to be all the way open, folks? Well, maybe. Maybe. If you live in a jurisdiction that, that does not create this legal presumption of reasonable fear of an eminent deadly force harm when you're dealing with a forcible and unlawful intruder, if you don't have that legal presumption, if it's not legally presumed they're there to kill you, you can still defend yourself, but then you'd have to be able to articulate specific evidence from which you made a reasonable inference of a deadly force threat. Did they have a weapon? Was the door fully open? Were they actually in the home? More concrete evidence that you don't have to come up with, that you don't have to be able to point to or articulate when you have the benefit of this legal presumption that they were there to kill you based on the forcible and unlawful entry. So in this particular case, it doesn't really matter that the door wasn't fully open, but it's the kind of thing an investigator would ask about because a prosecutor would want to know. Okay. And then what happened after that? After the shots, he had, he had turned and went off of the porch. And it's kind of hard to remember after that. So now the father's saying after the shots, that's when the ex-boyfriend turned and went off the porch. In fact, the boyfriend begins turning after the first shot. When the second shot is fired, the boyfriend's about 90 degrees to the doorway, which is, you know, not moving away, but it's no longer trying to get in. And when the third shot is fired, the boyfriend's back is to the doorway and he's moving in the opposite direction. He's stepping off the porch. All that happens while the shots are being fired. Not after the shots are being fired. After the third shot, he continues to move off the porch, but... 
that action of turning away from the doorway, moving away from the doorway, that begins at while the shots are being fired, not afterwards. Even that, we were all freaking out, obviously. Okay, understandable enough from a human perspective, right? But folks, one of the requirements of using deadly force in self-defense is reasonableness, right? The five elements of self-defense, innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, reasonableness. Your perceptions, your decisions, your actions in self-defense have to be reasonable, both subjectively reasonable, you believe them to be reasonable inside your head. You had a genuine good faith belief inside your head that you were acting reasonably, but also objectively reasonable in that a, a hypothetical, reasonable and prudent person in your circumstances would have had the same subjective belief. So subjective reasonableness, objective reasonableness, you need both for the element of reasonableness, and you have to have reasonableness to have a lawful use of force in self-defense. When you say, I was freaking out, is freaking out synonymous with reasonableness? When you think of a reasonable and prudent person, is that someone who's freaking out? Would even a statement like this open the door for a prosecutor to argue to the jury that, listen, he, he didn't shoot because he had a reasonable perception of deadly force threat here. He, he shot because he was he was just freaking out. And ladies and gentlemen, you know, it's understandable that under certain circumstances, people might freak out, but that doesn't give you license to kill somebody. Oh, I forgot to mention. Thanks, Shane. You can get this. We give this away for free, folks. This five elements of self-defense law cheat sheet. It lists the five elements, innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. It provides a brief description of each. We give this away for free as a PDF download. We don't charge a penny for it. You can get this at lawofselfdefense.com slash elements. If you don't know these five elements, you can't possibly understand self-defense law. These are the building blocks of any claim of self-defense, no matter what state you're in, no matter what U.S. jurisdiction you're in. Lawofselfdefense.com slash elements. Move in there. If he wasn't, then the neighbor had come up going, you know, like, and we was trying to yell at him to stay back because I didn't know what he was. He, from my understanding, that he was outside and he heard some gunshots. He was, he was more concerned. He just didn't know what exactly happened. I think that's why he came over to maybe check on you guys or just. Yeah. So um, we don't have that footage. I, I've seen it elsewhere, but uh, two neighbors uh, came over, adult males, in their late 20s, early 30s, adult males came over uh, and saw the ex-boyfriend laying there in the driveway or around the corner from the front porch and looked at him. And uh, they just they simply concluded that's a dead person. So the, the UK media tried to characterize them as being cold hearted and cruel for not attempting to provide aid. First of all, they have no legal duty to provide aid. They've got nothing to do with this event. Uh, second of all, they may have no training to provide aid. They may be creating legal jeopardy for themselves in attempting to provide aid. And folks, I, I've worked on an ambulance crew. I've seen dead people. And there are just times when, I mean, you don't need to be a medical examiner to know that person is a dead person. 
you can tell by looking at them. I'm not telling anybody else what to do. I'm just telling you that's been my personal experience. Just something to that effect, but yes. And then, so you told him to stay back, okay? And then, um, did you go back in the house after you, did you, where did you see him at? Was James? it, was it, um, I didn't go back out. Okay. I stayed away from it. Okay. Did you go outside to, and you said you saw him laying there or something? So, so now the cop is asking him, all right, did you go outside to the body yourself? And the reason the cop is asking this question really is because the cop is wondering whether or not there might be grounds to worry about tampering with evidence, tampering with the scene. If they find a knife on the ex-boyfriend's body, for example, did the, did the dad put it there? Uh, also, of course, it's another opportunity to try to catch the dad in a lie. So maybe the dad did go out there, but doesn't want to say he went out there because he's concerned it could look bad. So now he's going to say he didn't go out there, but maybe they have witnesses. Maybe they have on the ring camera that he did. Um, so anytime they can catch you in a lie, especially in a self-defense case, folks, at the end of the day, you're telling the self-defense story to a jury at trial. If they don't believe you because they just think you're a liar because you've been demonstrably caught in lies, they're not going to believe your self-defense claim, no matter what the other evidence is. So one of the things the cops hope to do in these cases is catch you in apparent lies. He was completely around the corner. Okay, but you didn't leave the porch. Did you come out on the porch at all? I did not. I didn't want to touch anything. Or... Did you come outside at all? Or outside of your threshold? I, I guess I should say. No. By the way, that, that concern about uh, someone maybe planting evidence on a scene or tampering with evidence at the scene came up, you may recall, with the Theodore Edgecombe trial. Uh, so Theodore Edgecombe was the um, he was uh, a black male riding his bicycle down the street, got into a confrontation with an immigration lawyer and his wife who were driving down the street in their Kia Soul. Uh, the immigration lawyer got out of his car, confronted Theodore Edgecombe, put his fists up and Edgecombe pulled out a pistol, shot him in the face and killed him. Uh, and then uh, the immigration lawyer's wife rushed up to her fatally wounded husband um, put her hands on his body. You know, she was, as one might understandably do. But the defense counsel then in the trial of the shooter, in the trial of Theodore Edgecombe, said uh, because it was discovered later that the husband had a knife on his person. And the wife would testify that, yeah, he carried a folding knife for stuff like opening boxes. But the defense was trying to suggest that the reason Theodore Edgecombe shot him, the reason Theodore Edgecombe would have been justified in shooting the immigration lawyer husband was because the immigration lawyer husband was wielding the knife. Now, in fact, the knife was not found in an open position on the ground. The knife was folded in the husband's pocket. But because the wife rushed up, the defense counsel tried to suggest to the jury that, well, what happened was the husband did threaten our client, the defendant with the knife. But then when the wife rushed up, she tampered with the scene. She collected the knife, folded it, put it back in his pocket. So it would not appear that the immigration lawyer victim had used the knife as a weapon. So this kind of thing comes up all the time when you, uh, when you insert yourself into the scene. You could just see his feet. Yeah. Okay. I understand. Okay. And then, um, did, who called 911? Did you guys call 911? They, they, were, they were in the process. I think we was online on, on the phone with them before he tried to break the door down. Okay. You so they, they were, they were on, the, on the 911 call.
during that whole thing. So either your daughter or your wife called on my daughter was. Okay. Cause, so were they still had the ring up on their phone or whatever? Maybe my wife did. Okay. And then, okay. I'm not sure. I understand. And Allie might have been on with 911. Okay. okay. And then uh, did you guys all just stay inside until deputies or yeah. I understand Sydney police came out there as well because they were probably um, a little closer maybe. All right. So in the interest of time, I'm going to stop it right there. The rest of this interview, the cop begins to ask the father about the daughter's relationship with the boyfriend. Uh, how long were they dating? Uh, what was that dating relationship like? Uh, and the cop here is just he's just fishing. He's fishing for um, evidence that might go to the father having a state of mind not consistent with lawful self-defense. Perhaps the father had some existing malice towards his ex-boyfriend. Perhaps the boyfriend had treated the daughter badly and the father was aware of this and was angry about it, was just looking for a reason to shoot uh, this poor young man at, at smashing in the front door of his house. Uh, the cop here is fishing. There's no reason for this father to be participating in this fishing expedition that can only hurt him. I mean, there's really three kind of narratives that can come out of this. One of them is at least not harmful to the father, that he didn't really know anything about the boyfriend. He didn't insert himself in his daughter's relationship. Or the father may say words that could be twisted to make it look like he had reason to have malice towards this victim, that he killed them, therefore, for reasons other than self-defense. Or the third scenario is the father actually had malice and now produces, against his own interest, evidence in this interrogation of his own malice. That guy was a jerk. Remember in the George Zimmerman trial, George Zimmerman's on 911, keeping Trayvon Martin under observation, as he'd been taught to do as a neighborhood watch volunteer. The police had taught him, keep him under observation, call 911. That's what George Zimmerman's doing. And then Trayvon Martin runs around the corner of a building, and George Zimmerman on the phone says he's running these bastards, whatever word he used. It was not a racial epithet. Uh, these bastards always get away. That phrase was used by the prosecution in Zimmerman's trial endlessly to suggest malice. And we know what it was. If you hear the 911 call, you hear the way Zimmerman said it. It was frustration. His, his little uh, condo community had been subject to a tsunami of robberies, burglaries, home invasions. And the suspects committing these crimes are always getting away. That's why they had just created this neighborhood watch. It was brand new. Because of the, the crime wave going through their little community. So he was frustrated. It wasn't malice. But is the prosecution allowed to pick cherry pick those words out and suggest to the jury that they should infer malice? Yes. They're allowed to make that argument to the jury. So here in this last part, that's what the investigator is doing. He's asking questions about the daughter's relationship with the boyfriend, not because he cares about the relationship, but because he's fishing for indications of potential malice on the part of this father that might suggest a motive other than necessary self-defense for the shooting of the boyfriend. And that's about it for that, folks. So bottom line, again, folks, whatever you might think you might want to say to the cops, to 911, to the responding officers. And there are things you might want to say that could be helpful 
you know, that's too complicated a subject for us to cover here. Once you're talking to the detectives, once you're in this room, this interrogation room, you don't say a damn thing, except I'm asserting my right to silence. I'm asserting my right to counsel, period. And then keep your damn mouth shut. Okay. And when I say keep your damn mouth shut, folks, it's because you can assert your rights. But then if you decide to start talking, you've effectively waived your rights. They can start asking you questions again. And cops are clever. Again, this is not a knock on them. They're just trying to do their job. But say this father had asserted his right to silence. So now the, the, his right to counsel. So now the detectives are like, well, we can't ask him any more questions until his lawyer shows up. But what the cops can do is they can sit on the other side of the room and have a conversation between themselves within hearing of the father. Hey, Joe, what do you think happened here? Well, I think that, I think that guy just murdered that poor kid. And the father goes, no, 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 it wasn't like that at all. Oh, really? Well, tell us what happened then. And now the father is talking. He's effectively waived his right to silence. And now the police, because he started talking, even though earlier he asserted his rights, now because he started talking, now the detectives can start asking him questions again. So assert your rights and keep your damn mouth shut. All right. The next story I wanted to cover, and I'm just going to do it quickly in the interest of time, is uh, really a tragic event. Uh, but it's a story of a cop who shot at a dog and uh, a dog that was charging at him. Uh, and uh, downrange of the dog was the dog's owner laying on the ground. The reason the cop was responding to the scene was in response to someone calling the police saying, hey, we think there's someone maybe hurt. There's some lady laying on the ground. So that's why the cop's walking down the sidewalk towards the lady. They ask her, are you okay? You know, is someone in a diabetic coma? I mean, who knows? Are they a crime victim? It's not normal for someone to just be laying on the ground. So the cop's there to respond. And as he calls out to the woman, are you okay? A dog starts charging at the officer. The officer starts backpedaling, takes out his pistol, fires a shot at the dog. And the shot skips off the sidewalk and hits the woman in the heart causing mortal injury. She doesn't die instantly. She's alive long enough to know that he killed her. I believe she shouts, you killed me. And, uh, and she dies. And uh, then the, so the cop was charged. Uh, I believe it was charged with murder, uh, went to trial. And after 10 hours of deliberations, and this is in Texas, by the way, after 10 hours of deliberations, uh, the jury acquitted him of criminal charges. Now, what I don't, what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the dog attack part. I know people are very sensitive about police shooting dogs. Uh, frankly, to me, I mean, from what I can see in this video, it doesn't look like a very big dog. I don't know. I, I would personally be disinclined. I mean, I've seen dogs that are big enough that I'd want a gun if I thought they were attacking me. This dog does not strike me as being in this category. Uh, but Let's set aside, let's pretend, let's pretend for purposes of discussion um, that the dog could potentially have been dangerous to the officer. The question then is, what would be his liability here for unintentionally killing the woman? 
That's the question. What's the mental state? Does it rise to a criminal degree of mental state? Um, and this will overlap a lot with the kind of mental state discussions we've had around the Alec Baldwin shooting of Helena Hutchins, for example. But let me pull up the uh, the news story here real quick. We'll scroll through it quickly. Let's see. All right. Cop who shot a dog but killed the owner instead just got off. Now, this is from uh, Vice. Uh, Vice reporting is very uh, anti-cop left wing. So all, all the, the tone and the way the facts are presented is going to be very anti-cop. But they do a good job of catching these stories. I'll give them credit for that. Uh, so there's the cop on the left. By the way, a, a relatively new cop who's no longer a cop. He, uh, I believe he resigned from his position. Probably a good thing. May not have the judgment required to, well, for this kind of event. But a former Arlington, Texas cop who shot and killed a woman while aiming at her dog has been found not guilty of criminally negligent homicide. Now, when you see the phrase criminally negligent, it doesn't mean negligent. It's another way of saying reckless. I'll, I'll talk more in a moment about the difference between negligent conduct and reckless conduct. Uh, I would prefer if every jurisdiction used those two things for what they mean. They mean different things. Negligent is different than reckless. Negligent doesn't carry criminal liability. Recklessness does. Uh, but some jurisdictions, instead of using the word reckless, they'll say criminally negligent to differentiate that from negligent. It just means reckless. So uh, he was charged with, uh, and, and to be a criminal charge, it would have to be reckless or criminally negligent. If it's merely negligent, it's only a civil suit. It's not a criminal charge. <clears throat> so he was charged with criminally negligent homicide. After 10 hours of deliberations, the jury uh, acquitted him in the death of 30-year-old Margarita Brooks. It was a four-day trial. Uh, and the defense argued he had reasonable fear to believe that Brooks' dog, who was running towards him when he arrived in the scene, was going to attack him and the paramedic behind him. So the defense is making a defense of self and a defense of others argument. Uh, the, the defense attorney, Kathy Lothorpe, called this an accident. An accident is also different than recklessness and different than negligence. We'll talk about that in a moment. In August 2019, the officer responded to a 911 call about a woman who'd passed out. Uh, while canvassing the area, he noticed Brooks lying in the grass. Uh, the video shows Singh calling out to Brooks, asking if she's okay. She responds, she's fine. But within seconds of their short exchange, Brooks' dog begins running toward the officer. He says, get back, before drawing his weapon and firing three times. The dog was only grazed. One of the bullets ricocheted off the ground and struck Brooks in the heart. Uh, what the F... Brooks can be heard screaming in the footage, oh, my God, police shot me. She was rushed to the hospital but could not be safe. So he had graduated from the academy in February 2019. This was August 2019. So he'd been a cop for six months. He had apparently just finished his um, field training, uh, which is about right. He probably finished it just a, a week. It's all it says a month before the shooting. Uh, defense attorneys argued the former cop experienced tunnel vision, causing him to lose focus uh, on the uh, to focus solely on the immediate threat quickly approaching him. Uh, so he lost focus on the woman who he was aware of, but under the purported stress of being allegedly attacked by the dog, he went tunnel vision on the dog, basically completely forgot about the woman being downrange in the crisis of the moment under stress. Right. We just talked about that in the last portion of today's show. 
uh, fired the shots, one of which would have been fatal. Um, let's see. Unhelpful to the defense, but I guess it didn't matter. Another de detective testifying for the state said he would not have fired his gun under those circumstances. He'd probably have kicked the dog. Uh, and uh, the officer had been uh, had retired. Of course, there's a, a lawsuit being brought uh, civilly in this case by none other than Lee Merritt, who is one of these Benjamin Crump type of lawyers. I don't know the race of the victim here, uh, but... Uh, but my focus is on criminal law, not civil law. So I'm not terribly troubled by the civil suit. I imagine, I mean, he's only suing for a million, which is not that much, frankly, uh, in the context of these cases. Now, I do have the video. Uh, another reason for this to get demonetized. So let me pull that up. It's only a few seconds long, about a minute long. And we can, whoops, that's not what I wanted. This is it here. Okay, folks, here we go. And this is a body-worn camera. So it's, it's hard to see the woman here. She's off to the right side of the sidewalk in the far distance, in that shaded area. Uh, we will see the not very large dog start running at the officer. Nobody. Ma'am. Hello. Are you okay? Is that your dog? Can you get get back? Here comes the dog. Two forty three shots fired. All right, so that's... Man, get a hold of your dog. <laughs> of course, he doesn't know he shot the woman at this point. Uh, the media made much out of that, that he was some kind of cold-hearted monster because he shot her in the heart, uh, and then uh, he told her to get a hold of her dog. I, I presume he didn't know at that time that she'd been struck by one of the rounds. Uh, but in the interest of time, I'll just cover this quickly. So th there's really kind of four mental states that could be in play here uh, accident negligence recklessness and an intentional killing those are those are the four at play uh, accident is when it would be completely unforeseeable to the reasonable person that the bad outcome could result no way for you to know that a bad outcome could result so you go to visit your elderly aunt in her apartment, the third floor, and she asks you to move a heavy piece of furniture from one side of the room to the other. You're happy to do that for her. You're young, strapping young man. Uh, you pick up the heavy piece of furniture. You move it to the far side of the room. You put it on the, on the floor, and unbeknownst to you, the floor joists are rotten, and the piece of furniture drops through the floor into the second-story apartment where it kills a woman in that apartment. Did you kill that woman? Yes. Was it a homicide? One person's conduct resulted in the death of another person. Yes. 
but it was a genuine accident. There's no way you could have known that those floor joists were rotten. There's no way you could have known that there was any risk of the woman being killed by your conduct. A genuine accident, genuinely no fault. There's neither civil nor criminal liability there. It's just a bad day for the victim. Wrong place, wrong time. No fault of yours. So that's an accident. Zero criminal liability in the case of a genuine accident. In negligence, we have a circumstances where a circumstance where you did not actually know you were creating a risk, but you should have known that you're creating a risk. Now, should have known, of course, is a judgment call, right? A jury is making that judgment call, a civil jury. Negligence is grounds for civil liability, but not for criminal liability. Um, and it might be where you're driving your car uh, in the rain under low temperature conditions. So it's right around freezing. And a reasonable person would have known they have a thermometer readout on the car. Maybe they even get the little you know, ice warning flash on the dashboard. Uh, and you, uh, you're traveling at a speed that would be reasonable if the conditions were dry. But it's raining and some of that rain is freezing and you should have known a reasonable person would have known that it was freezing and your car slides and slides into uh, another person and kills them. So a jury might conclude that, well, listen, he didn't actually know he was creating a risk. He, he, he wasn't telling himself I'm creating this risk, but he should have known a reasonable person should have known that under those driving conditions, driving at that speed could cause unjustifiable death to somebody. And somebody died as a result. So he didn't actually know he was creating the risk, but he should have known. And he caused this unjustified harm. That's negligence. And that's the basis for civil liability. Now you have a wrongful death suit and you have to pay the survivors of that woman who you killed uh, money. They can't put you in jail. This is not an issue to deal with the state. You're not being prosecuted, but you could be civilly sued. And the compensation would not be time in prison for you, but money that would be paid to the survivors of the family in compensation for the civil wrong. That's negligence. Next, we have recklessness, the next step up the tier. Recklessness is grounds for criminal liability. What differentiates recklessness from mere negligence is in conditions of recklessness, you know you're creating the risk and you ignore that risk and someone dies as a result. And the classic example here is drunk driving. You get drunk, you know you're getting drunk. You get drunk, you get behind the wheel of a car, and you run somebody over. Now, did you intend to run somebody over? No, you were just trying to get home. So you ran someone over and killed them. The killing was unintentional, but it was reckless. You knew you were creating a risk of unjustifiable death to another person by drunk driving, and that harm resulted. You ignored that known risk and that harm resulted. That's recklessness. Or if you're handling an inherently dangerous instrument like explosives or poisons or dangerous chemicals or dangerous drugs or a firearm, you're automatically bumped from negligence to recklessness if there's a bad outcome. Because we all know those things are inherently dangerous and take exceptional care to avoid killing somebody. That's the Alec Baldwin situation. If Alec Baldwin had been handling, I don't know, a cinder block and somehow managed to kill somebody unintentionally, that would almost certainly have been 
negligence. But because he did it with a gun, an inherently dangerous instrument, that automatically makes it reckless. We all know guns are inherently dangerous, especially Alec Baldwin. He's on the board of a gun control organization that exists on the premise that guns are exceptionally dangerous. So he knows better than anybody, right? Uh, so recklessness is where you know you're creating the risk. You do it anyway. Somebody dies as a result. A risk of unjustifiable death to another person. If you commit, kill someone unintentionally but recklessly, it's basically a form of manslaughter. And so what you'll see, this called, called different things in different jurisdictions, but the underlying legal principle is the same. You might see it called um, involuntary manslaughter an unintentional killing in a reckless manner. You might see it called um, reckless homicide, which makes sense, right? You might see it called criminally negligent homicide. Criminally negligent, just put parentheses around that and replace it with the word reckless. It means the same thing. Criminally negligent is just another way of saying reckless. It's a step above mere civil negligence. It's recklessness. Now it carries criminal liability. So that's recklessness. Then we have the ultimate level, of course, which is the intentional killing. You intended to kill that person. Um, <clears throat> what applies here? Well, we could have had a few different scenarios. I mean, the, the, with the cop who shot at the dog and accidentally killed the woman. The defense argued this was an accident. Was this an accident? Was it completely unforeseeable that this cop could kill somebody firing his gun? No, it, it's really not completely unforeseeable. You're firing a gun. I mean, the, the bullets don't miss ever, right? They may miss their intended target, but they keep going until they hit something. Something stops them. Uh, could this be negligence? Well, it could be. I mean, you, you might look at this and conclude, well, I, I believe he should have known he was creating that risk of unjustifiable death by discharging his gun, uh, but he didn't actually know. Is that a credible view? I mean, the argument I guess you'd have to make would be that under the stress of the perceived dog attack, and by the way, you don't need to be facing a deadly force threat to be justified in shooting at a dog. A dog's not a human. You need to be facing a deadly force threat to shoot at a human, but he wasn't shooting at a human. He was shooting at a dog. So the threshold is different. The stress of facing what he perceived we would argue, the defense would argue, reasonably perceived as a life-threatening or dangerous dog attack, um, that the normal physiological response of that kind of stress, and again, we talked about stress earlier, was that tunnel vision. His, his focus shifted entirely to the dangerous threat, and his mind lost perception of everything else. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm not saying that's what you would have to conclude that's what happened. I'm saying that is a conclusion that a jury could arrive at. And they could arrive at that conclusion in a criminal court, and that would mean there's no criminal liability. The officer and his department could still be sued civilly, but if there's no negligence, there's no civil... Sorry. Um, if it was negligence, there may be civil liability, but there would be no criminal liability. And in a criminal trial, the jury is only being asked to determine criminal liability. So if they think, well, at worst it was negligence, then there's no crime. An acquittal is appropriate there. Or they could theoretically have concluded that this was recklessness, that he knew, or because he's handling an inherently dangerous instrument, a gun, we will presume that he knew 
that he was creating an unjustified risk of death to others, and he ignored that risk in firing at the dog, and therefore he's guilty of a reckless homicide, a criminally negligent homicide, which was the crime he was charged with. And this jury didn't believe that was the case. Would it have been reasonable for the jury to come to that conclusion? Could a reasonable jury have convicted on this evidence? I think so. If it's based solely on what the video shows, it would not be a completely irrational verdict to arrive at. But they didn't. This particular jury didn't. Or ultimately, one might attempt to characterize this as an intentional shooting, but I think that it just doesn't fly. Nobody believes this officer intended to shoot this woman in the heart. I mean, in, you know, he intentionally bounced around off the cement to kill her. That uh, He had no motive to kill her. It just wouldn't make any sense. That's why he wasn't charged with straight-up intentional murder, why he was charged with this reckless homicide or what Texas here calls criminally negligent homicide. So those are the four mental states we see come up in a lot of cases, and often accident, negligence, recklessness, and intent. Uh, and often what defense attorneys are trying to do at a trial or argue to a prosecutor pre-trial is, listen, my client may have screwed up. Maybe it doesn't qualify as a genuine accident, but at worst, it was negligence. So they're trying to remove the offense from the criminal realm to save their client from a prospective prison sentence. Is their client still subject to civil suit and damages? Yeah, sure, if they're found civilly liable, but at least they're not going to spend years of their life in a cage. Um. All right, folks, I think that's about it for today. We're an hour and a half in. So thank you all, as always. Sorry, there's no super chats. Oh, let me look at the, sorry, before I do let you go. Uh, yeah, no uh, law self-defense member questions. Friday afternoons are tough uh, for engagement. Uh, and uh, no super chats because YouTube was kind enough to demonetize me before I even went live. I guess that'll teach me to put the word kill uh, in my subject lines. I'll remind all of you, of course, that the sponsor of today's show uh, was none other than Law of Self-Defense itself, our American law courses. These are law school level courses in the law, taught in plain English by genuine experts. Um, criminal law, constitutional law with the Second Amendment focus, evidence, criminal procedure, and more at a fraction of the time and cost of law school and without the political ideology of law school. Most of our instructors are people who are uh, American patriots who would not fit in well to a law school academic environment. That's why they find it attractive to teach for us. Uh, they're more than eminently qualified to teach at a law school, but for political reasons, they wouldn't be accepted there. Uh, all we do is we teach traditional American law in the traditional American way, period. And if you sign up before the start of the first course, which is criminal law, Starts next Wednesday, September 7th. If you sign up before then, the tuition is 50% off, 50% off. And you can learn more about that at lawofselfdefense.com slash lawcourses. All right, folks. Until next time, I'll just remind all of you that if you carry a gun, so you're hard to kill. That's why I carry a gun, so I'm hard to kill. So my family is hard to kill. Then you owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to convict. Until next time, I remain attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.